trust in the media was a big problem before Donald Trump. He made it worse because he came after us and attacked us, but we were already suffering. This democracy needs us. We keep the country from falling into corruption. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. Today, we're going to talk with an icon and veteran of journalism, someone who has truly redefined the industry. She's covered some of the world's biggest news and events over the last five decades. The list really is endless. It started off with the Watergate scandal, the impeachment of President Nixon, the assassination attempt on Reagan, the Gulf War, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the list goes on and on. Clark, I have to say, I don't know who's more excited, me or my dad, who is a complete news buff. (laughs) I grew up in Iran in one of the few households that had an illegal satellite. I'm not quite sure how my dad had smuggled the satellite dish, um, but we were able to get all the American news networks and we had them on constantly in the background. And what I distinctly remember is my parents having dinner parties where they would invite their friends over. And after dinner, they would all get together and watch pre-recorded episodes of 60 Minutes. <laughs> that's how valuable it was. And that's how much we all enjoyed it. So I feel like I've grown up with our guest in my living room. It's very exciting for me today to introduce Leslie Stahl. Her career has been marked by political scoops, investigations, award-winning foreign reporting. Being in New York, um, you watch Leslie on TV, but then you see in person, Leslie has a big smile and a big laugh um, and is always seemingly in a good mood when one sees her out. And then you see her grilling these famous people on television and you're like, oh my gosh, this is serious. This is serious. Among her many accolades, uh, she's won 13 Emmys, a Lifetime Achievement Emmy for overall excellence in reporting. She's interviewed nine U.S. presidents from Nixon to Trump countless CEOs, politicians, and world leaders. And she's the author of two best-selling books, Reporting Live, about her work as a White House correspondent, and more recent and more personally, Becoming Grandma. Leslie, thank you for joining us on Redefiners. Welcome. Oh, this is a great pleasure, a great pleasure. And Nanans, I've been to Iran several times, wow. including when I was probably in my 20s. Uh, we went all over. The Shah was there and, you know, we were free to roam and we went to Isfahan. That's where I'm from. Oh, my goodness. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful. I am so glad you enjoyed your time there. Yes, I have. Fantastic. Um, Before we go down that road uh, too much, Leslie, would actually like to sort of start at the beginning, if we may. Um, You've had such a long and successful career in broadcast news and you're still covering some of the biggest... um, new stories around. Tell us how it all started. Did you know that you wanted to be a journalist or is it something that you fell into? 
I had no idea about journalism. When I was uh, in college, uh, I know we had a newspaper, but I don't think we had a journalism course. Out of college, I went to graduate school. Uh, I was probably in my early 20s, and I was working for the mayor of New York and walked into the newsroom and asked a reporter, what do you do all day? Tell me what you do. And when he finished, I had this burning urge to become a journalist, just based on what he said he did all day, which was gather, gather, gather information, then put it together and disseminate. And I thought, wow, how come no one told me about this? Oh, brave new world, you know? It was like falling in love. And, and did you know that you wanted to focus on the political side as opposed to other parts of journalism? Well, when, while I was working for the mayor of New York, so there was already politics there. And my boyfriend in college was a politician. So, yeah, I was interested okay. in it. And my first job uh, in journalism was at NBC News working in their election unit. So, you know, I entered journalism through politics. Leslie, we ask all our guests about their redefining moments that help them become the person they are today. Was there a pivotal moment as a journalist that either propelled your career or early on defined your career? Ages ago, I was interviewed by a group of young women who were doing a research project at Rice University. And they were trying to determine what made success that was different between men and women. Mm -hmm. And women, they told me, always talked about luck. And men never talk about luck. Men take the bull by the horns. And women feel, you know, swept along. I feel I, I got in during affirmative action, which was popular back then. And so I was in the door, incredibly grateful just to be there. I just feel... Uh, the, the, I was on a wave of some kind. I suppose, therefore, that the pivotal moments had more to do with the news of the day. Hmm. So as you mentioned, I covered Watergate. And it was lucky that I covered Watergate. I was assigned to it. I didn't ask for it. And of course, it lasted for years. Uh, so that was my break, so to speak. But I fell into it. And from a personal perspective, any personal redefining moments? My husband and I had COVID at the same time. And my husband's handicapped. So we had people here around the clock. And I came home and the nurse who was taking care of us said to me, you are the first one of my patients to survive. Oh, my God. Of course, it's searing. You're the first patient I've had that survived. And it chilled me to the bone. Right. The whole time I had COVID and I was in the hospital with pneumonia and all of that, I never felt endangered, never. Mm. And when I go out reporting and I get into sort of thorny, maybe dangerous situations, I never feel I'm in danger. I come home afterward as I did from COVID and I think, you idiot, why did you feel scared? Unless it does something like that make you rethink priorities? I mean, dare I ask, has it made you maybe want to retire from the professional side and spend more time with the family? I do think that having COVID uh, changed my priorities a little bit, but never leaving my work. I mean, they're going to have to drag me out. That Let's just oh. face that. Um, I did change my priorities in the hospital 
And as Clark knows, he and I are on, were on a board together and I retired from the board and it had something to do with saying, you can't do everything, Leslie, grow up. You know, I'm almost 80 and I'm telling myself to grow up and just reduce the field a little bit, but not mm. my work. And can I ask one more question before we sort of move on? So much like I am starstruck today, and we've had some amazing guests on these podcasts, but I am totally starstruck. Leslie, in your life, you have interviewed some impressive people, world leaders, CEOs, politicians, heads of state. Um, has it ever been a bit too much? Have you ever either been starstruck or ever emotionally affected by your conversations? No, I haven't been starstruck. But I have been shaken emotionally. I have Ooh. been kind of stopped in my tracks. And it's never with the powerful people. It's never with the names. It's never with a movie star or anything like that, or even a CEO. It's usually um, a doctor. And my, the first, first human interest story I ever did, I did for 60 Minutes. And I, I interviewed a doctor with bone cancer. And he was in excruciating pain and, and he was fantastic as a human being. And, but the story was that he, the only time he didn't have pain was when he was operating. He was a brain surgeon. Thank goodness. You know, and he, uh, yeah. And I was overwhelmed by him. And there have been some families who are taking care of sick children that overwhelm me to the point of tears. Hmm. So I don't get starstruck. You may have been a little oh. intimidated by a general once. But <laughs> That's probably what makes you a very good interviewer. It was Norman Schwarzkopf. Uh, yeah, he intimidated me. <laughs> Talking about Norman and, and other sort of big leaders um, that you've interviewed, you've often had to deal with big egos, strong opinions, people who maybe have their own agenda and aren't open to sort of telling you the truth exactly how it is. And that's actually, believe it or not, not too dissimilar to what we do. Um, we often, I often find that I really need to prep before interviews and actually kind of cross-reference um, to really know kind of what the facts are. How, how have you done that? How do you prepare for interviews where you know that the person you're interviewing may not want to tell you the whole story? Well, that's almost 100% of the time. Is it? <laughs> that, oh, of course. And particularly with business people, particularly, and politicians as well. And both, uh, if you're interviewing a CEO, for example, or a head of state, or even a senator, um, they practice. Mm. They get their staffs to try to second guess us and go through the questions they think we're going to ask and kind of school them in getting around it because people don't say yes. They have to agree to an interview to come on 60 Minutes, obviously. And they don't agree unless they have something they want to impart or they've been accused of something and they want to deny it. So they all have an agenda. No one comes on just to come on. I mean, I can't think of a time. And so it's a game. Uh, we mm. know they're going to try not to answer or evade or maybe not tell the truth. And we have to prepare ourselves 
to push or maneuver around. Mm. For the big interviews, we spend a lot of time, a lot of time getting ready. You know, it's the same when we interview some of these successful leaders. What we're trying to do is recruit successful leaders to go run another company or a foundation or a university. And so for us to be good in our jobs, we have to understand when they were not successful and how they handled it and what they did. Uh-huh. And so you've got to keep probing for strengths and weaknesses. And there are some of our partners who are like, oh, you know, she's famous. You can't really ask her that tough question. But otherwise, we're not prepared and we're not giving a balanced assessment to our clients about how good a leader this will be in a time of crisis or transformation. It's kind of tricky sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I just, I want to pick up on something, Leslie. You talked about affirmative hire. I've never heard you say that before. And I think you and Connie Chung and Bernard Shaw were the early affirmative hires. Um, and then you were, I think, the first woman to serve as the CBS News White House correspondent. It is, has been a male-dominated industry. And we've seen some of the uh, issues of the industry in the last couple of years. Tell us about how did you get through the boys club? And how did you, did you have to swing hard elbows? Did you just perform through? (laughs) Yeah. So how'd you get through? How'd you get through? Well, you know, I think this will be of interest uh, to whoever's listening. The real answer is that my boss at the time who hired me and Connie Chung and Bernie Shaw was totally 100% committed to affirmative action. He was not going to let us fail. Mm. And the commitment of the boss is so vital for anything Mm. to succeed. Connie, Bernie, and I all went on to basically have big careers. And he told the senior correspondents that they were to bring us along, that we were not to fail, uh, and he also told us that if we didn't work hard, he wasn't going to stay with us. And I did work hard and I did have sharp elbows. I did. But if he hadn't made sure that we didn't fall on our faces early, he brought us along when he thought we were ready. And uh, so bosses, everything. I think you are absolutely spot on. We work with a lot of clients on DEI initiatives, and one of the key sort of success factors is exactly as you said: it need, the sponsorship needs to be there because you can bring great diverse talent in, but if they don't have the sponsorship, the mentorship, they'll feel alienated. They won't get the opportunities. Ultimately, won't feel included, and they leave. So, I think you are absolutely spot on. Well, and I lived it, so I know. And is it easier or harder? There's some first-generation women that go through and say, hey, I made it, you know, you got to make it on your own. And there are other first-generation women or diverse leaders that say, I'm going to help more people than help me. What's the journalism industry like now for women or diverse talent? I do think women are naturally uh, good journalists. And you just see women everywhere. Mm. I thought it would happen much earlier than it did, much sooner than it did. Affirmative action came to into the business world in the early 70s. And it's only in the last, let's say, five, six, seven years that you really do see women breaking through the ceiling in my business. Mm. But yes, finally, women are succeeding. And, you, you know, they're succeeding everywhere. And I've been waiting for this to happen forever. You know, mm. why, why did it take so long? Women have been dominating graduate schools for a long time more women graduate 
law school and medical school. And there should be more women. Women are very effective leaders. Um, I just read a piece about if you want to really do well in the stock market, get yourself a woman financial advisor. And so, yeah, it's happening and it's a good thing. So diversity has changed in your industry. Um, Something else that has changed is obviously technology. There was a statistic that said something like 86%. So almost all Americans use digital services to get at least some of their news information. And actually that's, and I imagine it's it's the same the world over. And that's exaggerated even more when you look at the younger generation. So something like almost half of all 18 to 29-year-old Americans get their news primarily for social, from social media. I don't know what you think of that. That I find scary. That is a scary thought given all the misinformation and disinformation on social media. And as I, I'm going to talk about my dad again, as the, I, I grew up in a household where you didn't just watch one news network. My, my dad flipped between Al Jazeera, France 24, BBC, CNN, CB, all of them. And, and his theory was you have to sort of get... Ev- Every sort of network um, will have their own agenda and you kind of need to see everything to really find out what the full story is. So I am, I personally find it scary that the younger generation use social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is, to get their news. What's your take on that, both as a journalist as well as as a grandmother? Yeah, I'm terrified about social media for my grandchildren, terrified. Too many people are believing what they're reading from from sites and from blogs and from social media and whatever, getting information that hasn't been checked, that hasn't been vetted. They're just believing it. They're buying it. And even worse, they're just going to the place that they know agrees with them. And it has uh, been obviously extremely harmful for the country Mm. and devastating for the news business, just devastating. It's not only I mean, the Internet and what you're talking about, social media, has not only been harmful for journalists, but it's been harmful for democracy. It's mm. been harmful for the world. And mm. uh, that's a genie that's out of the bottle. I have no idea how to rein it in. It will have to be reined in. It, it has to be. Regulation is the answer, but I don't know how the politicians are going to get there. Hmm. I'm working on a story about China right now. And as you know, Xi has in his mind that their system is competing with our system. Mm. That authoritarianism versus the messiness of democracy. Uh, And he wants to prove to the world that their system works and that ours doesn't. And, you know, I don't know how many people know that we're in this worldwide competition. I know it, and I'm working on a story about it. It makes it even more acute in my mind. But uh, social media, I mean, he's trying to rein it in, and you say, oh my God, he shouldn't be doing that. And you think to yourself, yeah, but shouldn't shouldn't somebody put a couple of guardrails around what's going on here in this country? Mm. We talk about uh, just pulling on that thread of trust in traditional media. And uh, there are a couple of studies that say trust in traditional media, probably not 60 minutes, is an all-time low. Um, I'm curious, how do you look at trust in the traditional media and what we can or should do about it? Trust in the media was a big problem before Donald Trump. 
he made it worse because he came after us and attacked us with, you know, howitzers almost every day. But it was already, we were already suffering. I, I have to say, in reading a little bit of history about this, that trust in the media has been a sort of a, a, a roller coaster ride uh, over history. Virtually every president comes to loathe and despise the press mm. because, <laughs> you know, as a lot of businessmen do. And that's because our job is to uncover what they're trying to keep secret and what they're not doing well. They blame the messenger and they attack us so the public won't believe us. You know, Donald Trump, I asked him once why he comes after us so much. I said, it's boring. You do it every day. It's just so repetitive. And he said, I do it so the public won't believe you when you say negative things about me. (laughs) All presidents feel that way. I mean, Mm. Clinton loathed us, despised us. Even Jimmy Carter came to dislike the press. I also think right now, one of our big problems is that everybody's media, Kennedy's media, Joe Scarborough's media, Rush Limbaugh's media, and I'm media. Mm. And we're all in this salad bowl. You know, media, well, they can't trust them. Of course not. Well, when you say they're biased, well, some of them are avowedly biased, the ones I named. You know, they, they want you to know where they're coming from. And then when we say we're mainstream, you know, you're media. You can't be trusted. Mm. So, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for our problem. I have no idea how we can thread our way out of this. Um, it's tough. I mean, I came, I came along, as you know, with Watergate. And afterward, we were heroes. So that I went mm. through that period. And then it was, it's been pretty much downhill in terms of the public's trust in us since then. You just gave us a kind of pretty negative, beat-you-up approach to what you do every day for decades. So what is perseverance for you? How do you keep going if, if, if you're kind of taking it on the chin? You're generally, I think, a very optimistic person. Talk about perseverance. I, I work for 60 Minutes, and, you know, people do come after us. Uh, I've had to have some protection every now and then. Mm. But I don't know. I, it must be like what I told you about being in war zones and being in danger. I've never felt really in danger. And I love what I do. Mm. I just love it. I didn't come to 60 Minutes because I was tired with what I was doing. I came to 60 Minutes because they dragged me and they asked me. You know? um, th- the wonderful thing that I do is I can cover anything. And I'm, I'm, I'm going going off to do a story on wine, and then I will interview a president. So how do you say I'm discouraged when you have a job like that? You had a conversation, Leslie, with Judy Woodruff, where she said, once you get into journalism, it's in your blood, and you just can't take it out. It is is kind of that the secret to what you're saying that that you know the perseverance isn't an issue because you just are so passionate and believe in getting the truth out whether it's wine climate change politics absolutely and you know i don't know about your business but we are always meeting deadlines and when you meet a deadline you have like an adrenaline rush so you're almost addicted it is an addiction 
but it's a love. It's a love for this business. And it is a painful mm. uh, moment to think that the public doesn't trust us. Um, this democracy needs us. We're cleansing. We're the cleansing agent. Uh, we keep the country from falling into corruption. I think if you just came over to 60 Minutes and just were a fly in the wall for a day, and you would see how committed everybody is. And all, you know, the layers of checks and, and the fact checking that goes on, you, I know you would be impressed. Uh, it's a mission. We'll be right back with Leslie Stahl after a quick break with Kimberly Archer, a managing director with Russell Reynolds Associates in our Washington, D.C. office. Hello, I'm Kimberly Archer, a consultant with Russell Reynolds in Washington, D.C. Good leadership starts with trust. Trust from customers, trust from your board, investors, and shareholders, and trust from your employees. As history has proven time and again, without trust, businesses are at risk to fail and be disrupted by another organization who is seen as more trustworthy. Numerous studies have shown that high-trust organizations have higher engagement and productivity, lower employee stress, fewer sick days, and less burnout. And it's not just trust in the leader. If the team doesn't trust their leader, they're less likely to follow them and apply their best thinking and efforts, especially during a challenging business transformation. If a leader doesn't trust their team, they're more likely to micromanage, blocking innovation, creativity, and progress. And if a team doesn't trust each other, there's a higher chance of infighting, duplication of efforts, credit grabbing, and overall slower performance. Trust is a two-way street and core to top team performance. To build mutual trust, leaders need to focus on being authentic, not only in their communication with their teams, but also in their actions. Only then will they be able to build a lasting trust relationship where teams feel confident to step into transformation and ambiguity embrace change, and do their very best work. To learn more about trust and transformation, go to russellreynolds.com slash insights. And now back to our conversation with Leslie. Leslie, um, talking about the news and its place in the world, um, given the transformation in every aspect of our lives, what's the future of news? Does it become more citizen spontaneous reporting is there still a role for the longer form investigative broadcast news? How do you look at the future of the news business? If you go online today, where all news is, you will see that you can get the long form. Uh, you can get all kinds of investigations. You can get deep analysis. Uh, you can find what you agree with and what you disagree with. And so I think there's definitely a future for journalism. Here's the problem. When you had broadcasting, which when I came into journalism, broadcasting was beginning its golden age. We're at the end of it, by the way. And the audiences were huge, gigantic. The entire country was watching only three stations. And we had, you know, 30 million or more people watching one new show. And so we had money. Mm. And it, it's expensive to produce 60 minutes is extremely expensive because mm. we travel a lot. If you divide it up into small, small chunks, which is what's going to happen on the internet, 
the, the kind of cream of people who came into journalism because there were decent salaries. Um, that's going to go away. And I'm worried about the smartest kids in the class not wanting to be in this profession. That worries me a lot. Nevertheless, kids are flocking and smart kids and kids who feel a little idealism toward this profession. And idealism is something we all crave in what we do. But I do worry about the model, the model for supporting a family if you're a journalist. So Morgan Murphy, one of our daughters, graduated from the university in May. Ironically, a media studies major, but more around data analytics and a, and a math minor. So quantitatively looking at what audiences react to what news in what media. She's not going to be in the front of the camera. She's going to be behind it saying, what do people want to hear about and who wants to hear that? What's your view of this more analytical approach to who absorbs what pieces of the media and let's steer it to them? You know, that's not the school of journalism right, right. that I grew up in. I remember Walter Cronkite. He used to lick his finger, stick it up and say, we don't watch how the wind is blowing. We never do that. We decide what the news is and we t- we tell it. So we'll decide what the biggest story of the day is and then we'll report it. And that began to change as uh, journalism became more competitive. Um, news outlets did begin to do polling surveys. What do people want to hear? Mm. In my career, I watched what is news change depending on who was making the decisions about what is news. I remember once I was covering the White House. Jimmy Carter was president. And my boss, and he called me up because I was the woman. And he said, you know, there's this big story I've just seen come across the wire um, that there are something like huge percentage of unnecessary hysterectomies. And he said, should I lead with that? That was monumental. One, to lead with a health story of any kind. Mm. But two, to lead with a health story about women. women. It was a giant moment. It was like 1979, something like that. Diverse teams make companies more powerful, more effective. Well, yes, and we haven't had it. And now that we are having it, your eyes open up. Leslie, you wrote a book about becoming a grandmother. (laughs) Tell us about that. The the joy of being a grandmother, but decided to write a book about it. Yeah. Well, someone proposed it to me. And I, I thought about it at great length. It takes a long time to write a book, especially if you keep working. And I kind of looked at the demographics. I thought Hillary Clinton, I was writing it while she was running for president. I thought she was going to win. And I thought Mm -hmm. we are truly entering the age of the grandmother because we also had Angela Merkel and Mm -hmm. older women were coming into positions of real authority in business. And I looked at the demographics and I said, you know, there's a huge audience, huge audience for this kind of a book. So I did kind of what your daughter does, did what Morgan did. I did <laughs> looking at the analytics. And I even before I wrote it, I realized that there was a lot of science, you know, mm. a lot of biochemistry and a lot of anthropology 
And I thought, I can, there's a book here. Mm. Plus my sister-in-law, who is a psychologist who sees abused children and their families, mm. was telling me that a lot of grandparents in this country, a lot are raising little mm. kids. Yes, right, mm. right. And right. so I thought with all that, that's a book. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, I'm, I'm trying to write a book on sustainable leadership right now. And you're right. Having a full-time job and trying to write a book uh, don't necessarily yeah. go together. So I'm coming to you for advice when we finish this podcast. <laughs> I, no one ever need, should come to me for advice on anything. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Well, we like to end each podcast with some rapid fire questions. Um, and this is where we're going to ask you a series of questions and you respond as quickly as possible, just off the cuff. I mean, it's all been off the cuff. Ah, they, exactly. There you go. There you go. So, Leslie, if they made a movie about your life, who would you want to play you? Who is the sexiest young actress <laughs> around? <laughs> uh, how's about Jennifer Aniston? There you go. There you, I gave yeah, you perfect. Okay. Um, what did you want to be when you were a child? An architect. What's your hidden talent? <gasps> well, I love to play the piano. I'm terrible at it. Absolutely terrible. I bang and it's awful. I feel sorry for anyone in my apartment. Um, I broke my hand uh, and I, um, I haven't been able to play well since, but I still do it. I love to do it. I wouldn't call it a talent, but I would call it kind of a side interest. A passion. When, when was the last time you were wrong? Three minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm wrong all the time. You know, I am, I'm, my husband, as I mentioned earlier, is handicapped and he has Parkinson's and it's after he got COVID, it became dramatically uh, more acute. And um, I'm a caregiver. And um, the thing that's distressing uh, and wrong is anger and mm. I'm learning that I'm not alone which helps mm. um, but you get angry and then the guilt is overwhelming because how could you be angry at someone who can't help himself I mean uh, so I'm wrong a lot every day a lot are you finding a new person in yourself caring for him I am I am um, I would have thought that I would be depressed uh, and brought down by it. Um, and it's strangely, inexplicably the opposite. And I'm a little baffled. Mm. I do think there's something in caring for someone. You know, the other side of it makes you feel good in a way. It's strange. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of downside and then there's this huge upside and i'm not mm. depressed at all and that's kind of stunned me yeah he's not depressed either by the way right it's a good journey you're on together more power to you leslie last question where do you get your news from <laughs> i read my news in paper form <laughs> uh, for the most part uh, i i do go onto the web obviously and i um keep up 
because there are these dings that go on all day long yes. that drive you crazy. Yes. And But when it dings, you have to go look. But I read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post every day in paper form. I still read Time Magazine and The New Yorker and The Atlantic. Uh, I read a lot and I watch um, Judy Woodruff at night. Okay. I really like the New York Times Daily Show. I like that a lot. Mm. Yeah, there just isn't enough time in the day. And you add to that emails, which drive me insane. And it takes so much time. You know, your day just is so full with all this stuff. And then poor Clark is writing a book on top of that. My goodness. But people should be happy to know that Leslie Stahl is not great at returning email. But if you send her a text, you get an instantaneous less than 10 word response. So just keep going with that. It's working. No, Leslie. don't it's tell working. anybody that. I don't want my stuff. No, don't tell them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Leslie, I love to give away your secrets. It's okay. But listen, thank you for being here. That's no secret. And what you have seen and experienced, I think many of us have learned from. I think this redefining moments that we seek in these podcasts to have your nurse after COVID say, you were the first patient who'd survived. That would shake me to the core. But you did something different. You chose the priorities that you're going to keep working and stick with your stories. One of the takeaways I'm coming away with here is this sense of what are your priorities? And they may be different than others, but you set your own priorities. You're saying you've never been starstruck by the celebrities, but attracted more by the human, the emotional stories. And I think it comes out in who you are. Also, how you play with interviews, which some of us should learn from, that it's a game. They may not exactly tell the truth. So you prepare yourself, you push, you maneuver. Your reality of the misinformation on the internet, that what comes up on a browser search may not be the truth, but yet you have this optimism and this insight that young people still flock to journalism, to telling the real stories with real facts and double-checking them. It's great to hear. It's so important. And finally, your own human emotional story, how you care for your husband in the trials and tribulations, but yet that's who you are. This has been a, a fantastic discussion. You've been so open and energized as always. Um, and so, you know, we just want to say thank you so much for being part of Redefiners and being willing to be interviewed. Thank you. It was fun and your questions were interesting and challenging. So I had a good time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, Listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.